Chapter 24 of the Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 24 The Origin of the Universe. One of the most fascinating branches of astronomy is that in which astronomers have attempted to discover the method and the evolution and development of the universe. Most of us believe that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that the earth was without form and void. Both of these sublime truths are taught by science as well as by theology. Science cannot go beyond that. It can only, with all reverence, indicate the method by which the Creator has brought into existence this stupendous universe. The general opinion of astronomers is that the method of creation is disclosed to us in the remarkable law of evolution. Indeed, the law of evolution, as developed in the nebular theory, may now be regarded as an established scientific truth. The first hint of the nebular theory, the development of the solar system from masses of nebulous matter, was given by the Scottish astronomer James Ferguson. It was in a private letter that Ferguson first put forward his views of the nebular theory, an effort to explain the method of the creation as described in Genesis. He was followed by the German philosopher Kant, who in 1754 propounded his views on the development of the planetary system from a chaotic nebula or mass of incandescent gas. The complete nebular theory was, however, put forward independently about a hundred years ago by Herschel and the French astronomer Laplace. These two astronomers reached the nebular theory by different methods, Laplace by mathematical reasoning and Herschel by direct observation of the heavens with his great telescope. Laplace noticed that in the solar system the planets all revolved around the sun in the same direction, from west to east and that each of the satellites known to him revolved round the planets in the same direction. There was no obvious reason why the planets should revolve in this direction more than in any other. Another fact noted by Laplace was that all the planets revolved round the sun and the satellites round their primaries in almost the same plane or level as the earth moved round the sun. There was no obvious reason why the planets should all move in this plane, Yet, as a well-known astronomer has remarked, there are a million chances to one in favor of the supposition that the disposition of the movements of the planets has not been the result of chance. Laplace accordingly put forward his explanation. This was that the solar system had originally existed in the form of a mass of incandescent gas or nebula. In contracting, he pointed out, this nebula had shed rings which condensed to form the planets, and having condensed almost to its utmost, now forms the sun, the central body of the solar system, which is still contracting. Laplace had never seen a nebula, for the simple reason that he did not possess a telescope. Such an object probably existed in his imagination only. His great contemporary, Herschel, had seen hundreds of nebulae, had classified them, studied them, theorized concerning them. Quite independently of Laplace, Herschel was led to the view that these nebulae he was observing would in course of time develop into systems of suns and planets, and that conversely the solar system must have once existed in the form of a great diffused nebula. 
since the days of these astronomers, a further addition to our knowledge has been made by Professor Darwin of Cambridge. According to his researches, millions of years ago the Earth and Moon were not separate bodies. At that time, our planet was a gaseous mass, spinning on its axis in a very short period between three and five hours. In consequence of this rapid rotation, and in consequence of the tide raised by the sun, the Earth split in two, and the smaller of these two parts now forms the Moon. This hypothesis, rigorously developed by mathematics, is distinctly supplementary to the nebular theory, and explains in greater detail the particular development of that part of the solar domain known as the Earth-Moon system. Since the days of Herschel and Laplace, astronomical science has progressed remarkably. The nebular theory has been modified with the advance of knowledge, but the central idea, the development of the universe as we know it, from the masses of incandescent gas is thoroughly established. Thanks to the spectroscope, that marvelous instrument by which we are enabled to ascertain the elements of which sun, stars, and nebulae are composed, we now know that the nebulae are really gaseous, a point on which Herschel could merely theorize. And what is even more important, we are enabled to trace the order of development. We see nebulae and stars in all the stages, through which our solar system has passed and will pass, and in the other planets of the solar system we behold the stages through which our earth has passed and will pass. By a careful study of the heavens as they are today, we are enabled to read the past of our world and approximately to trace its future. In the heavens we behold stars and nebulae in every stage of evolution. First of all, we have widely different nebulae, of which the Orion Nebula is a type. Next, we have a more condensed nebula, such as that in Andromeda, and then the stage of the spiral nebula. These spiral nebulae, of which there are many known, in the heavens are not gaseous. They are partially solidified and are already breaking up into subordinate centers of condensation, which will in course of time become planets or small suns. These larger nebulae, like the Orion Nebula and the Great Spiral, will in all probability develop into clusters of stars. The smaller nebulae develop into stars similar to our own sun, attended by systems of planets. By means of the spectroscope, we are enabled to trace the development of these stars after they pass out of the nebula stage. We have first the helium stars of a bluish-white tint, in which the element helium is predominant, which are largely gaseous in their constitution. Next, we have the white stars proper, in which the gases are not so widely diffused. Next, we have the yellow stars, similar to our own sun, orbs in their prime, slowly but surely condensing. The next stage is that of the red stars, past the zenith of their careers, and slowly dying out. In this class are indeed many of the interesting objects known as visible stars, which are already becoming unstable in their light, just as a lamp flickers when it is going out. Lastly, we have the dark stars, which are only known to exist by their influence on the bright ones. These orbs are extinct and dead suns, and they roll through space a solemn example of the goal to which our sun, among others, is steadily moving. The earth, our own world as we have seen, has developed from the conditions of a little local condensation in the primitive nebula. From the same condensation has developed our satellite, the moon. It may be interesting to trace the various stages through which our Earth has passed, as exemplified in the objects in the heavens around us. 
in the early stages of its history, the earth was without form and void, as the book of Genesis so simply and graphically tells us. In scientific language, the earth existed in the shape of an unshaped gaseous condensation in a chaotic nebula. This was the first stage of the earth's existence. In the first day of creation, the Bible tells us, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Independently, science tells us the same. In passing, we may note that we must not interpret the word day as meaning our terrestrial period of 24 hours. Such a period did not exist when the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In those early times, the earth was self-luminous. Light came into existence as the nebulous mass slowly contracted. This light was in existence so far as the earth was concerned, long before the light of the sun. Next we have the period when the earth had solidified, so as to admit of the existence of dry land, air, and water. Before this was an intermediate period when the transformation was being effected. Professor Lowell, in his recent work on the evolution of the worlds, traces very completely the evolution of the earth from the gaseous state to its present condition. Not until the temperature of the earth had fallen to a hundred degrees centigrade in the outer regions of the atmosphere could clouds form, and not until the surface had reached the same temperature was it possible for the clouds to settle on the surface as oceans. As Professor Lowell writes, Reasoning thus presents us with a picture of our earth as a vast seething cauldron from which steam condensing into cloud was precipitated upon a heated layer of rock, to rise in clouds of steam again. The solid surface had by this time formed, thickening slowly and more or less irregularly, and into its larger dimples the water settled as it grew, deepening them into the great ocean basins of today. Later on the crust hardened, while the oceans were still boiling seas. These oceans, according to Lowell, must have produced a small universe of cloud, all over the Earth's surface. After this the Earth began to sustain the lower forms of life, Vegetation, the flora of paleologic times, flourished sustained by the heat of the earth itself below the cloud masses. So, again to quote Professor Lowell, the flora of paleologic times, as we see both at their advent in the Devonian and from their superb development in the Carboniferous era, consisted wholly of forms whose descendants now seek the shade. These plants, grown to the dimensions of trees, inhabited equally the tropic the temperate and the frigid zones as we know them now. They grew right on, day in, day out. The climate then was as continuous as it was widespread. The reason of the equality of climate all over the globe was the fact that the light and the heat of the sun were shut off by the great cloud masses and the heat was wholly supplied by the earth itself. This produced the half-light which suits the growth and development of the tree ferns hence the luxuriant vegetation of ancient days. By and by the clouds dispersed. It was only then, in reality, that the year began, and that the seasons made their appearance. As the sun was invisible, and its rays played little part in the climate of the earth, the annual revolution had no visible effects. But with the clearing of the sky, the outer universe came into existence, so far as the earth was concerned. An interesting point may be mentioned here, which Professor Lowell does not touch on in his book, and which is indeed seldom dealt with. It has been the fashion among many scientists to treat the record of creation in the first chapter of Genesis, 
either as a story or as an allegorical history. But it is somewhat remarkable how close is the correspondence between the biblical account and the latest scientific theory as developed by Professor Lowell. After detailing the bringing forth of vegetation, consequent on the appearance of dry land, which followed the division of the waters, which were under the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament, the biblical record says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens, to divide the day from the night, and let them be for sign, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Professor Lowell, who traces the earth's history from a purely scientific standpoint, says quite explicitly, Only with the clearing of the sky did the seasons come in, to register time by stamping its record on the trees. Before that, summer and winter, spring and autumn, were unknown. He also shows that before the clearing of the sky, there was no climate. The downpours of rain from the upper waters must have been stupendous. There was imperfect recognition of day and night. Dull, somber days alternated with nights black as pitch. The moment the sun was let in, all this changed, though not in a twinkling. The change came on most gradually. We can see in our mind's eye the first opening in the great welkin, permitting the earth its initial peeps of the world beyond. Eventually the clouds parted afresh and farther, and the earth began to open its eye to the universe without. The correspondence is complete between the account of modern science and the account of the ancient biblical writer. So there need be no discrepancy between a belief in the evolution of the earth as described by modern science and a belief in the accuracy and trustworthiness of the biblical record. Professor Lowell proceeds to trace the further development of our planet in what he calls the sun-sustained stage. The temperature of the oceans fell, and a totally different variety of animals and plants came into being. The oceans were inhabited by fishes in the earlier days. But after the clearing of the skies, the land became peopled with different varieties of animals and reptiles. Then came the development of vegetation, depending on the change of the seasons. Next followed the colored flowers. The earth became beautiful, clothed with all the verdure of the flowers. And this sudden development of beauty was due to the fact that the sun had become the dominant factor in the earth's organic life. The sun, so far as the earth was concerned, did not come into existence until after the original appearance of life on earth and the celestial bodies in general were invisible until the fourth day or period of creation. Jupiter is a much larger planet than ours, and at a much earlier stage of its evolution. Therefore, a careful study of it throws light on the history of the Earth. As already mentioned, after the invention of the telescope, it was found that the visible surface of Jupiter was diversified by numerous markings known as belts. As astronomical observation progressed, it was found that these were belts of dense clouds, so dense that it is impossible to see through them the real surface of Jupiter. It was originally supposed by astronomers that these clouds were of the same nature as our terrestrial clouds raised up by the heat of the sun. But it has been conclusively shown that this is impossible. The atmosphere of Jupiter is much more cloudy than our own, and yet the planet is many times farther from the sun than the earth. The clouds are certainly raised by heat, but not by sun heat. They are raised by the intense heat of the planet itself, which does not permit the vapors to settle down as oceans, 
but raises them into the atmosphere, in which they float in the form of cloud belts. Here, then, we have a world in a condition similar to that of our earth before the accomplishment of the work of the third day of creation, and consequently before the work of the fourth day, when the sun, moon, and stars appeared. Jupiter will not read its fourth day until the clouds roll away and the glories of the other universe are visible from the surface of the giant planet. Jupiter is the best example of a planet in an earlier state of development than our Earth. Other examples may be cited in Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Each of these is much larger than the Earth, and each of these appears to be in a condition of great heat and at present quite unfitted to be the abode of living creatures. In Venus we have a planet in the same stage of planetary life as Earth, because it is the same size. In Mars we have a stage further. This planet is smaller than the Earth and has consequently run more swiftly through the stages of its evolution. On Mars, planetary old age has set in. The oceans are all practically dried up, and their place has been taken by marshy tracts of vegetation, and the atmosphere is very rare. In the Moon, our own satellite, we have the final stage of planetary life. The Moon is a dead world. It has practically no atmosphere and the oceans which once must have existed on its surface have completely disappeared. The surface of the moon is a succession of very mountainous regions, succeeded by flat, gray, barren plains, which are supposed, owing to their low level, to represent the old ocean beds of the moon, which in earlier days were filled with water. The moon rolls through open space a dead world, an indication of the future which awaits our own planet. Just as in a garden, where we behold flowers in different stages of development, and may by the study of these indicate the life history of a given flower, and read its past and future, just as in the forest by noticing the various objects, from the tender shoot to the magnificent full-grown tree, we are able to tell the past and future of any member of the group. So in the heavens, by noting all the different stages of star and planet life, from the diffused nebula to the dead world and the dark star, we are enabled with remarkable accuracy to read the past and future of our own dwelling place, the earth. To quote the reverent remark of Kepler, we are permitted to think the thoughts of God after him. We are enabled to trace in a partial manner the marvelously beautiful method by which the Creator has called into being this magnificent universe in which we live and we realize in a new light the meaning of the words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. End of chapter 24